Hey, we have some important things to talk about. We're doing one sermon, four weeks, and that one sermon, four weeks, has got one passage, and we've been looking at that passage, and we'll be looking at it for all four weeks because we are talking about during this sermon for four weeks in one passage about one question, and that question is simply this. What kind of neighbor am I? We said there is no more important question that you're going to answer. No more important question that we're going to talk about in here when it comes to us dialoguing on a Sunday morning. It's like, is that the most important thing we can talk about? You bet it is. And it's, don't take my word for it, right? It's not me that's trying to convince you of that. That was Jesus' idea. Jesus, when he was dialoguing and talking to somebody who came and asked him an important question, and that important question was this, what's the most important thing for us to focus on? Said this, love God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And then he said, oh, by the way, the second is just like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. In this last line, I want you to read out loud like a bunch of happy Browns fans all together with me. Ready? Here we go. There is no commandment greater than these. There is nothing more important that we could be talking about in here, right? And the reason there's nothing more important for us to talk about is we said the first week that loving God results in loving my neighbor. And loving my neighbor reflects that I love God. Loving God results in loving my neighbor. The two go together. And we've been having this conversation. And can I just say this? Let me step aside and say, I have loved hearing from you guys. I have gotten a barrage of stories from you guys, and it has been a blast. I, uh, after, I think I might have shared this with you last week, after I think the first service last week, I had a guy go out, and this is what he said to me. He said, I am going home right now to meet my neighbor across the street from me. I said, that's great. He said, no, no, you don't understand. He's been my neighbor for 40 years. Yeah, and, and, and that's the response I got first service. And I said, oh my, I so admired him. You know why I admired him? Because he said, Dan, I'm gonna put skin on what we just talked about. I didn't come just say good sermon. In fact, he didn't even tell me good sermon. He said, I'm just going to meet my neighbor, right? And, and, and I listened to him tell that. I'm like, wow, I, I, I didn't wanna gasp because what he's doing, I need to do. You see, he put skin on it, had a young adult. He was going out to get his mail, saw his neighbor across the street, garage door open, happens to be a neighbor that no one else in the neighborhood particularly cares for. And he decided, garage doors open, I'm gonna see if he's in his garage, walked down that driveway. Young adult, I'm saying like 20 years old, walked down that driveway, the guy's in the garage and he says, hey, I'm your neighbor, what's your name? And the guy said, hey, I didn't expect somebody to come, right? Nobody really likes me around here. It's fascinating, right? Met somebody in Discovery Wednesday night. Discovery. We had almost 40 people in Discovery. Met somebody in Discovery. They may be in this service, and they've been coming, I don't know, three, four months, something like that. And the reason they're here, their neighbor invited them. It's fascinating. Had lunch with somebody this week, and they talked about these neighborhood meet and greets that they have. I'm like, what's that? We set tables up in the cul-de-sac. Once a month, we just set out desserts and drink, and everybody gets together, and it's a blast for us to get to know each other. Fascinating, right? Fascinating stories. Love it. Love hearing the stories. It is an important question. But last week, we said this. It ain't just important. It might be one of the most impactful things we'll ever do as a follower of Christ. It might be one of the most impacting things you and I will ever do. In fact, we said this, that some of our community's most pressing problems 
very well might be solved by neighboring versus maybe us doing another community initiative, a government agency, or even a church activity, that neighboring might be the most impacting thing we can do. In fact, it led me to ask the young guy, say, hey, can you give me a slide with a map and show me on that map where everybody goes when they leave this service? You see, where are we gonna have the most impact? How can we get everybody in this cubicle? Look where we all go. That's y'all's houses, by the way. We just took Graceland, took a dress, and boom, 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 boom. And imagine what happens when we spread out of here. That's where we go. It's one of the most impacting things that we'll ever do. Led us to a very familiar story. Story found in the book of Luke chapter 10, right? Story that a lot of us have heard. Story that a lot of us have at least heard alluded to. The story of the Good Samaritan. In this story, Jesus is talking to an expert in the law. Expert in the law asked him a question. The question the expert in the law asked Jesus is simply this. He said, hey, what do I got to do to inherit eternal life? Jesus looks at him and says, you're the expert. How do you read the law? The guy says this. He says, well, here's how I read it. I got to love God with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength. Doesn't stop there. He says, and I got to love my neighbor as myself. Jesus said, bingo, you got it. Go and do that, and you'll live. Go and do that perfectly, everything's good. But as the story unfolds, the guy asking the question wanted to be okay with himself, wanted to justify himself. He wanted to meet the bare minimum requirement. And so he's got a follow-up question. And his follow-up question is this, hey, well, while we're on the topic, if it's about loving God and loving my neighbor, Jesus, exactly who is my neighbor. I want to know that I'm loving the right people, which led Jesus not to ask another question, but to tell a story. And we talked about this last week. And Jesus told this story and he never tells a story, never does anything flippantly or haphazardly. Even picking the characters in this story are very intentional. And he tells about a man who goes down a known familiar road from Jerusalem to Jericho, 18 miles, downhill the whole way, dangerous, don't go on it alone. That guy's attacked by robbers. That guy's left for dead, naked, nothing, beaten, in a ditch. And along comes the first character. The character that you would assume would be the first character you would want coming if you were in that man's condition. Because he's the priest. He's the religious leader. He's the respected spiritual leader. He comes, sees the man in that ditch, in that condition, and Jesus said he passed by on the other side. (laughs) No worries. That guy's intern, that guy's intern is coming behind him. He's a Levite. He sees the same man in the same condition, and you're like, oh, second chance. And Jesus says, that man... That Levite man seeing that man in that condition passed by on the other side. And we're saying, why in the world did Jesus start that way? The two people you think are going to be the heroes in the story, right? And here's what we said. We said, it's only when I begin to try to understand why they might have passed by on the other side that I begin to understand why Jesus started with them. Because he knew what the man's motive was. It was to justify himself. And we said, maybe that was his point. Because not neighboring is easy. It's a piece of cake for you and I to justify. It's a piece of cake for us to reconcile in our minds why we don't neighbor. 
And when we begin to understand why those guys walked on the other side of the road, all of a sudden they're easier for us to identify with. Well, maybe they were busy. Maybe it's too risky. Maybe it's too complicated. Maybe they're too far gone. Maybe we don't have anything in common. Maybe, maybe, maybe. And we said this, that not neighboring is easy for me to justify. I'm so glad the story didn't end there, right? Because Jesus continued the story. It's where I want to go today. He said, but a Samaritan doesn't have the same effect on you. It did them. We talked about this first week. Like everybody in the room, but I, a what? Like priest, Levite, ding, 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 Samaritan. As he traveled, same road, came where the man was. What man? Man in the ditch, man in this precarious position. That man, Samaritan, as he came where that man was, and when he saw him, he took pity on him. Then he did the direct opposite of what the priest and the Levite did. He went to him, bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he put the man on his own donkey, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day he took out two denarii, we'll talk about that, gave them to the innkeeper, says, hey, look after this guy. When I return, I'm going to reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. And then Jesus does something that's fascinating. He takes the man's question and he flips it. He totally takes the man's question and he flips the question. And instead of answering, who is my neighbor, he looks at the man and he says, that's the wrong question. But the right question is, which of these three do you think was a neighbor? I love that. He's like, the question isn't who is my neighbor, but the question is who neighbored? And he says, who who was it that neighbored the man who fell into the hands of robbers? The dude can't even choke out Samaritan, right? But he answers Jesus. And when he answers Jesus, this is how he answers him. The one who, say these two words out loud, had mercy on him. Jesus said, yep, go and do likewise. Everybody look here a second. Everybody look here a second. The fact of the matter is the man answers the question. He says, it's the one who had mercy. And that's what it says if you have the NIV Bible, which is an incredible translation, and that's perfect and accurate. Yet when you take the Greek language and bring it into the English language, it loses a pop like that, right? It loses like pop. And there's something sterile about that that causes it to lose its pop. Because when you drill that back into the Greek, I actually like the way the New Living Translation translates this verse. Here's what it says. The man replied, the one, say these three words out loud, nice and loud, showed him mercy. All that phrase is doing, you can forget this, it's taking two Greek words and it's putting them together. Forget that. But literally those two Greek words, when you smash them together, here's literally what it means. The one doing the merciful thing. Mercy isn't just a feeling that neighboring somehow revolves around me being merciful, me showing mercy. Mercy is this. Mercy is I give somebody what they need, not what they deserve. That's mercy. Mercy is me giving someone what they need, not what they deserve. Jesus is just saying this, neighboring is doing the merciful thing. And the merciful thing is giving people what they need. Here's how I want you to write it down in your notes. I want you to write this down. Neighboring is simply mercy in motion. 
Neighboring is mercy in motion. The man who showed him mercy, he was the one who was the neighbor. It begs this question for today. Here's the question it begs for today. We're simply asking, what kind of neighbor am I? So I got to ask myself this question, do I show mercy? Or let me ask it this way. I got to ask myself, in my cul-de-sac, in my apartment complex, in my trailer park, take it a step further, in my workspace, in my school room, is mercy in motion because I'm there? That's the question. Like, is mercy showing up because I'm in that spot? That's the question, which begs another question. What does mercy in motion look like? What does it look like when mercy is in motion? It's a great question. And so the Samaritan in Luke chapter 10, I think, gives us some ideas of what mercy in motion looks like when it shows up. And I think there's six. So I want you to get your pens ready. There's no fill in the blanks. You've got to just write them down, all right? Six observations. What does mercy in motion look like when it shows up? First is this. Here's what it says. We're just going to take it line by line. Okay, so you got your Bibles open, Luke chapter 10. Here's what it says. It says that he saw him. This first one is so important, guys. What does mercy in motion look like? How does it show up? Here's what I want you to write down. Mercy in motion starts with selfless awareness. Write it down. I know what you're thinking. Like, I expected to hear that in church, right? Selfless awareness. We hear it all the time. It shows up with selfless awareness. Here's why this matters. I want you to write it down. I want to talk to you a minute. Mercy in motion is me being self-forgetful enough to be aware of others. Why is that important? Listen, listen, I'm going to just tell you this. Because it ain't natural. It ain't normal. It is not natural for any of us to be selflessly aware It is not normal for any of us. Even if right now you're like, oh, but you don't know me, Dan. It's not normal. That's why, listen, let's just get real for a minute. That's why when we show up somewhere, right? I know you guys don't ever struggle with this, right? But our thought is what we become consumed with. What are people going to think of what? Me. What are they going to think about what I'm wearing? What are they going to think? That's why it takes middle school, high school girls two hours to get ready, right? Right? You tracking with me? Amen. Come on. Don't leave me hanging up here, right? right? Why? Because I want to make sure I'm consumed with what? Me. And it's not just gals, right? I walk into a room and what do they think about me? And am I cool? And I'm, I'm always focused on me. Why is that? Why is it that we are consumed with us? Well, there's a book that every last one of you ought to get and read. I don't say that often, but you ought to get this one. It's written by a guy named Tim Keller. It's called The Freedom of Self-Forgetfulness. It's three chapters, not very long. Every last one of you ought to get it and read it. I mean it, okay? He can thank me later for the proceeds. But in that book, it says this. The natural condition of the human ego is that it is empty, painful, fragile, and busy. Now, stay with me on this. Why is it that we walk in the room and my first thought is me, me, me? He's saying because the natural condition of our human ego is that it's empty. That means it's hungry. And so if my stomach is hungry, guess what I'm thinking about all the time? How am I going to fill it? 
I got to fill my stomach, right? That's what I'm thinking about. When I'm hungry, I'm hangry, right? You tracking with me? I just got to fill my stomach. That's why some of us, our egos are empty. That's why we keep filling our lives. Well, I got to do this. I got to find significance. Maybe I'll have identity. Maybe if I get involved here, maybe if I do this and I just, me, 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 me. Or, or he says, it's, it might, the natural condition of my ego is painful. It's hurting. Raise your hand if you ever hit your hand, your, your thumb with a hammer. Raise your hand. Anybody with me on that? Guarantee you, after you hit your thumb with a hammer, you're not thinking, man, I think I'm going to scratch my knee for a second, right? Ain't nobody doing that. What do you think? Thumb, thumb, thumb. That's what you're thinking. Listen, listen. All he's saying is that when my ego is hurting, all I can think about is me, me. That's why drama fills some of you, follows some of you around. Because the natural inclination of your ego is me, 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 me. And that's what he's saying. He's saying that, that, that when it's fragile, I need people to stroke me. And so when you say something like, well, I wonder what you meant by that. I wonder how to take that. Were you criticizing me? It's fragile. See, the natural condition of our ego is it's hungry, it's hurting, it needs to be stroked. And, and, and I'm going to respond thinking and consumed about me unless, listen close, something outside of me fills what's hungry and hurting. And that's what makes this next passage pop in Philippians 2. Because a guy named Paul is saying, Hey, do you have any encouragement from belonging to Christ? That's what fills you. That's what identifies you. Any comfort from his love? That's what heals the hurt. Any fellowship together in the spirit? Are your hearts tender and compassionate? Look at this. Then make me truly happy by agreeing wholeheartedly with each other, loving one another, working together with one mind and purpose. Don't be self-centered, selfish. Don't try to impress others because I want you to be impressed with me. Be humble. Listen, humility is not thinking less of you. It's thinking of you less. Thinking of others as better than yourselves. Don't look only for your own interest, but take an interest in others too. Listen, this is worth writing down. There's no blanks for it. My relationships will never be full of meaning if they're always full of me. My relationships will never be full of meaning if they're always full of me. And that's all Paul is saying. He said, there's a freedom when I allow my identity to be, be, be somehow caught up in who I am in Christ, when I allow my healing to come from Christ, there's a freedom. I don't always have to be thinking, me, 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 but I'm free now to see you. I'm free now to serve you. There's a freedom that begins to happen. And so this guy saw him. He saw him, and we've just been asking the question, do I see my neighbors? And we've been filling in a little grid. I think we have a picture of it. And my question is, how are you doing? Like, I, I've been talking to some of you, like, i got that thing on my fridge, and I am going to fill that thing totally out. Great. I think that is a great way to apply this. But I know this mercy in motion begins with a selfless awareness. But it doesn't end there. Look what it says next. It says, he took pity on him. Now, that's an interesting word. It says, he took pity on him. I don't like doing this often, but the Greek word for pity, can we do this? Because I'm going to teach you some Greek. Shake your head. You cool? You all right? Ready? 
not all of you are shaking your head. I need you to participate. This is all play. You ready? The Greek word for pity is asplachna. I'm going to say it again. Asplachna. On the count of three, I want you to say it with me. One, two, three. Asplachna. Why do I have you say that? Because the word means kind of how it sounds. Like when you say that word, like your gut, your abdomen kind of tenses up because that word, pity and compassion, here's how I would define it. It is a gut-wrenching compassion. In the first century in Greek, they wouldn't have described, I'm feeling this in my heart, kind of like that. Like when they described compassion and pity, they described it as something they felt, I'm sorry about this, this is gross, but in their bowels. That's how they described it. It's like, ah, that's wrenching my gut. It's used once to describe Jesus. It says when he saw the crowds, he had asplachna. He had compassion on them because they were confused and helpless. They were like sheep without a shepherd. What's the point? I want you to write this down. Mercy in motion ignites a sympathetic compassion. When it sees somebody and actually gets behind their story, it ignites this sympathetic splachna. It wrenches its gut. When this guy passed the man on the road, the man's condition ignited in him compassion for the man, not criticism. Can't believe you were traveling on this road. It ignited sympathy, not sarcasm. Poor sap, can't believe that. It ignited pity, not prejudice. Well, he's from another nationality. That's what happened when he saw the man in the condition. Listen, some of you in high school were supposed to read this book, To Kill a Mockingbird, right? Maybe you didn't read it, but there's an interesting quote in there. And it says this, if you can learn a simple trick, Scout, you'll get along a lot better with all kinds of folks. I love this, right? You never really understand a person until you consider things from his point of view, until you climb inside of his skin and walk around. Anybody agree with that? Just shake your head. You agree with that? I agree with that. I found that out the hard way. Found that out the hard way. When, when my wife and I were having our little family and my oldest was a toddler, we're still doing the potty training thing, and then we have Rachel come along, and she's an infant. And so the way Jennifer and I worked things in our paradigm was this. You know, I went to, uh, I was pastoring at the time, and so we had made arrangements. She stayed at home with the kids, and that's the way we decided to do things, okay? And as this has gone on, you know, all day long, I'm going to, going to the office. I'm dealing with some stuff and some hard people's issues, and I'm coming home, and I'm tired. My wife is amazing. I mean, she is amazing. I'd come home, and dinner would be ready. But I'm a little OCD. You can ask her this. I'm just a little bit that way, and so I like things a certain way. And I remember, you know, like, man, before kids, man, my wife's an immaculate housekeeper, and like, there's kind of some things laying around, you know, and I'm coming home from work. I'm just noticing it not saying anything, you know, I'm not just noticing it. And then I'm noticing my wife's like, she's like always tired. And I'm, I'm thinking to myself, I'm like, always tired, like here playing with the kids all day, kind of eating Twinkies or something, aren't you? And I said, sweetheart, you're like always tired. Like what's wrong, you know? And she looks at me and she says, Dan, see if you can relate. Men in the room relate if you have ever seen this face. I need some adult time. Raise your hand if you've ever seen that look, right? And I'm like, how hard can this be? That's what I said to her. I'm like, 
sweetheart, no problem. Said, you go out tonight, and in my mind, I didn't say it out loud, thank you, Jesus, but I didn't say it out loud, but I thought, when she goes, I'll take care of the kids, make sure he's potty trained, I'll change all the diapers here, and I'll clean these parts in the house that are kind of getting under my skin a little bit. That's what I thought to myself. She's going to go out at five. I said, hey, do I just stay out as long as you want with your friends? And I thought maybe she's going to come back next week or something, but stay out as long as you want. Five o'clock, she leaves, and we start about 7.30. I called her and said, when were you coming home? I just wondered, you know? (laughs) You know what I found out? My wife worked harder in those days than I ever dreamed of. You see, all of a sudden, I got in her story, and I'm like, ooh. I had a different perspective. Mercy in motion is self-forgetful enough that it's able and willing to identify with others. That's what it is. When it comes to my neighbors, the things that irritate me when I get in their skin and know their story might be the very thing that inspires me to love them more. That thing that's frustrating you about your neighbors right now, if you got in their shoes and actually walked a minute in their story, it might be the thing that creates some feeling of compassion in you. Mercy in motion has this sympathetic splachna. It, it's, it wants to feel and know the story of those that it loves. Which leads to the next thing, and here's what it says. It says he went to him. What's the point here? Mercy in motion is not just a feeling. This is so key. But mercy in motion is willing to make the first move. Can we just be honest? Here's what this means. Let's put it in our vernacular. Mercy in motion means that it's willing to make the first awkward move in neighboring. The first move in neighboring is awkward. Anybody agree with that? Anybody feel that, right? Like going up to your neighbor and say, hey, I'm your neighbor. I just came to meet you. It's like, what are you selling? What do you want, right? Things like that. And so it can be really awkward if you don't know your neighbor, to walk across the yard or to do whatever and make the first move, to go to them. I know it's awkward for you. Can I just say something? Can I I just say something? It's really awkward for me. Like, it's really awkward. You say, it is? Because none of you feel sorry for me. I can see it in your eyes. But it is really awkward. Can you put yourself in my shoes for a second? Can I tell you about meeting one of my neighbors? Like, I know this, this love your neighbor thing, and I'm like, I'm going to go meet this neighbor. It's going to be great. I'm going to walk across the yard. He's out walking his dog. He's got a Bud Light in his hand. He's just kind of chilling. I'm like, now's the time. So I'm going to walk over there. I'm like, he's just in his zone. I got my, I'm like looking like, you know, I'm like, you know, I'm like just going to go over and meet him. I'm like, hey, I'm your neighbor. Oh, cool, man. You know, my name's Dan, and my wife, Jen, hey, gave me his name, and I'm like, hey, how long have you lived here? He said, oh, it's how long we've lived here. And he said, how long y'all lived here? And I said, oh, about this long. And I'm like, man, it's good to meet you. And what kind of family and this and that. And then I made the mistake. I said, hey, you know, like, what do you do for a living? He said, this is what I did and I'm retired. Took a drink of that Bud Light and he said, hey, what do you do for a living? I said, I'm a logger. No, I didn't say that. <laughs> I thought about it because <laughs> I, I knew that if I answered him, like, I was not uncomfortable with it one bit, by the way. If I ever see you, like, I'm not uncomfortable with that one bit. But I knew if I answered him with the truth at that point, like, we're going to have this awkward moment. And so I said, well, I work down on Cleveland Maslin Road. This is a real story. i like, I work down there. He said, where? I'm like, you know? <laughs> I said, 
I work at Grace Church. What do you do there? I'm like, well, you stop it. You know, the guy was good at neighboring. I don't know. I said, well, I happen to be one of the pastors there. He said, you know, I don't drink this all the time. You know, it's just kind of... <laughs> I don't even know what the point was, but <laughs> willing to make the first move. I'm reading, I, I told you I'm reading several books, and I'm going to show you another one somebody gave me that has been part of my, you ought, to, you ought to write this down if you like to read, The Simplest Way to Change the World, Biblical Hospitality. It's right next door. And in that book, they have this thing called the always rule. I love it. The always rule means this. If you see a neighbor, if you see a neighbor that you don't know, haven't met, here's the always rule. You pause whatever you're doing and meet them, always. If you're walking to the car in a hurry, getting groceries out of the car, if you're picking up a package, always, always, always. This is helpful to me particularly, right? Because I can in a moment begin rationalizing away why I would want to meet somebody. Well, I'm busy, they're busy, got to run. And the always rule is something that helps me, okay, I want to be self-forgetful enough, sympathetic enough to walk into an awkward moment even. I want to be sympathetic enough, self, selfless enough that somehow I'm going to understand someone else's perspective before I just develop an opinion about them. He went to him. Doesn't stop there. Look what happens next. He bandaged his wounds pouring on oil and wine. Then he put the man on his own donkey, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. Guys, this is interesting to me. He saw the man, he felt for the man, he moved towards the man, and then he helped the man. I want you to write it this way. Mercy in motion offers practical help. I want you to write it down. Let's make sense of it. He offered him help that was practical. The man has gaping wounds. He needs bandaged. The dude needs a ride. He puts him on his donkey, gives him the help that he needs. He offers him practical help that the man needed at that time. Now, now look here a second. Let's apply this. Like, like here's what I'm pretty sure of. Look here a second. I, I don't know where all of you live. Chances of some of you guys driving home right now and finding your neighbor in a ditch are pretty low. Can I get an amen on that? Pretty low? Although I did share this first service. I want to tell you this. If you were here last week, you heard me tell about a neighbor we had one time that challenged my wife to a hair pulling contest. Anybody remember that, right? One time my wife was out getting groceries, same neighbor. Came home late at night. We lived in town. She pulled up to the curb. She opened up the back hatch to our van, right? And then she looked underneath our lilac bush, and there sat that neighbor waiting to scare my wife, okay? I'm just telling you guys, I do not live a boring life. I'm just telling you, all right? But the chances of you finding your neighbor under a lilac bush are pretty low, right? In a dish, pretty low. But here's what I know, that all of us are going to drive home and we have neighbors in ditches. We might not be able to see them. They're, They're figurative ditches that our neighbors are in. And the question becomes this, how can I move towards them and help them in the best way possible that they need? Guys, this made me think of two passages, two passages of Scripture. Just let them land. Just let them land. The first one's in James. And all I want to do is substitute neighbors in here. What good is it, Norton Campus Grace Church? Let's just get personal. Let's forget about, let's get personal. What good is it, Norton Campus Grace Church, if you say you have faith, but you don't show it by your actions? 
Can that kind of faith save you? Suppose you see a, here we go, neighbor who has no food or clothing, and you say, goodbye, have a good day, stay warm and well-fed. Let's put it in what we would say. I'll be praying for you, right? But then you don't give that person any food or clothing. What good does that do? They need food and clothes. What is he saying? He's saying, give them, help them. If you have it within you, help them with what they need. So you see, faith by itself isn't good enough. Unless it produces good deeds, it's dead and useless. It's like the two go together. Makes me think of another passage. It's the other John 3, 16. It says this. We know what real love is. Well, how do we know that? Jesus gave up his life for us. We've seen it. So we also ought to give up our lives for our brothers and sisters. If someone has enough money to live well and sees, here we go, let's do this, sees a neighbor in need but shows no compassion, how can God's love be in that person? Dear children, let's just get personal. Grace Church, Norton Campus, let's not merely say we love each other and our neighbors. Let's show them the truth by our actions. You see, when I read this story, I think to myself, this guy, mercy in motion, found a way to practically help. And it begs the question, when you drive home, what is it that my neighbor needs? Now, I told you last week about a story about 20 pastors that met with some assistant city manager. I told you that story. And they were saying, how do we neighbor? And they came back a couple weeks later and met with that, neighbor, that, that assistant city manager. And they said, us pastors want to get in on this. We want to do something that's going to, ooh, get this. We're going to really neighbor. Like, let's talk about that. And they're, they're like, we're going to make a big neighboring splash. And this assistant city manager sitting there. And they're like, what are some things we could do to, ooh, man. And she kind of awkwardly looks around and she's like, well, if I was you, like, I would go back to your congregations and ask them if they'd shovel their neighbor's walk. The pastors were like, what? That's not very flashy. That's not like, mm. And she said, but it's helpful, particularly if your neighbor can't shovel their walk. You see what she did? See, sometimes when I want to look to make a big impact, sometimes my focus is I want people to notice what I'm doing. I want it to be big and flashy and woo and billboards and everybody knows about it. Oh! And instead, the power of neighboring is what do they need? If my neighbor's old and can't shovel their own walk, you know what they need? They need somebody to shovel them out. If, 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 if they got physical issues and they can't bend over to pick up the sticks in the yard, you know what they need? Somebody to help them pick up their sticks might not just be physical needs. Maybe the biggest need my neighbor has is relational. Relational. Did you know I read this? Did, did, did some research on this. Forbes study says this. A new study found out that nearly, listen close, half, nearly half, don't know if you heard me, half of all Americans feel lonely with young people in particular experiencing the brunt of that pain? Like that neighbor you live beside might be one of that half, and maybe the biggest need they have is just somebody say, hey, how you doing? You saw me? You care? 
See what I mean? Maybe your neighbor just needs a listening ear. Maybe your neighbor has a spiritual need. And somewhere in the conversation and in the relationship, you'll have a chance to share Jesus. But maybe you're sitting here like one of you that's sitting here that sent me an email this week. And I love the fact this person was honest with me. They said, this neighboring thing's hard. It's stretching. This person literally said, I feel like Stretch Armstrong over here. And they weren't complaining. Because their neighbor, listen, their neighbor, it's, it's not even really safe for them to, like, literally they share it. It's like, I don't even know. Like, like I want to come out alive. Like, like they shared their... What do we do? To which my response, it was through email, we were corresponding. I said, your neighbors, listen, this might be you, your neighbors are lucky. If that's you, your neighbors are lucky. How are my neighbors lucky? Because they have somebody sitting, living right beside them who can talk to God about them and for them. And what I said to this neighbor, this is worth writing down, why don't you spend time talking to God for them and quit talking to others about them, is how I would phrase it. Talk to God for them. Sometimes when we have neighbors that are like, oh, I can't believe, we're like, we tell everybody, like, oh, man, my neighbors and this, and oh, man, and you wouldn't believe. And they're lucky because I have access. And this person legit, legit was like, man, I don't even know what would happen if I'm going to... I get it. Start here. I'm going to talk to the Father for them instead of spending all my time talking to others about them. You see, the man helped him in a way that was practical. It met a need, which led to the next thing. I want you to follow with me. Here's what it says next. It says, the next day, he took out two denarii. By the way, you're like, what's that? Two days' wages. You figure out your salary, figure out two days. He said, I'm going to take that and gave it to the innkeeper. And he says, I want you to look after him. Now look here a second. I don't know where you're at with this, but I'm all in on this neighboring thing. Woo, man, it's a good series. I like it. Ready? As long as it doesn't cost me anything. Like as long as it doesn't like cost me something, I'm good. And when I read this, here's what I read, that mercy in motion is kindness. It costs me. In fact, when you keep reading the verse, here's what it says. It says, not just that he paid the two denarii, but he said, when I return, I'll reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. Last week I said this, okay? Last week I said this. Neighboring is messy. said that last week. This week, here's what I want to say. Neighboring can be costly. I began thinking, I'm just going to help you understand how I began applying this. I began thinking, I wonder what would happen if I began to budget neighboring into my financial budget. I began thinking, I wonder what would happen if I began budgeting neighboring in my schedule, in my calendar. I began thinking, okay, I wonder what would happen if I actually, like, I'm living here for a reason and these people around, what would happen if I began budgeting money and time to actually do what God asked me to do? It's a different way to look at it. But it's not always money that it costs me. Ready? Because I know you guys like me right now and you might not in a second. Did you ever notice that Jesus, did you ever notice this, that Jesus had a way of taking the dial and 
turning the ante up a little bit. You ever notice that? If you've never noticed it, read the teachings of Jesus. He had a way of making church people feel uncomfortable. He's like, I'm doing pretty good. And then he would turn that down like, ooh. And there was one occasion he was talking about neighboring. Where I think he did that. And it's found in the book of Matthew. He said, y'all heard the law says love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I, Jesus, say love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. In that way, you'll be acting as true children of your Father in heaven. For he gives sunlight to both the evil and the good, and he sends rain just and unjust alike. If you, listen to this, if you love only those who love you, what reward is there for that? My, my wife used to live in the inner city of Chicago. And if you read the news, you like read about the gangs in the inner city of Chicago. You can go to the gangs in the inner city of Chicago and guess what? Love each other. You know why they love each other? Because they're all about the same thing. And so what he's saying is, well, even the corrupt tax collectors, the gangs in Chicago, the, what, the ISIS, I don't know, we're all in the same, I don't know, they do that. If you're kind only to your friends, how is that different from anybody else? Even people who don't profess Jesus do that. See, here's what I know. This neighboring thing is a great idea. And it's easy to love people who agree with me, vote like me, have the same stance as me, think like me, carry out their life like me, just plain old like me. But you put somebody beside me who votes different than me, stands for things that I don't stand for, and maybe doesn't like me. Oh, Jesus. That neighbor? It's almost like Jesus is saying, you know something, mercy in motion is willing to count the cost. Because there's deliberately a reason that I'm in that neighborhood, trailer park, cul-de-sac, whatever it is. Which leads to the last thing and then we're done. The guy says this, and I love this, and I've missed it before, and I've not heard many people talk about it, but it's, I think it's fascinating. He says, when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. I'd write it down this way. Mercy in motion keeps showing up. Let me, can I say it this way? And, and then I got to be done and, and land. Okay? So let me just think of a phrase to say so that you remember what I'm getting at here. Ready? Mercy in motion is not just a random act of kindness. Mercy in motion is an overflow attitude of kindness. Mercy in motion is not just a random act of kindness that performs an act. Mercy in motion is a presence that overflows with an attitude of kindness. It keeps showing up. I love that. It keeps showing. It's in the snapshot. You see, neighboring is mercy in motion. question for you this morning is, is mercy in motion in your neighborhood because you live there? which leads me to the last thing, and then I'm going to pray, and we're going to be done. But on your outline, you, you might have thought you were the only one that somebody lost their Band-Aid. <laughs> but you all got a Band-Aid on your outline. I want you to look at it. Get it? Even if you, listen, even if you didn't take notes, shame on you, by the way, but even if you didn't take notes, get that outline, get that Band-Aid out. 
In fact, I want to challenge you this way. And I know some of you won't do it, and maybe there's reasons you can't or won't or don't feel. I want you to open it. I really do. I want you to open that Band-Aid up because I'm going to ask you to do something. I love it. I'm hearing Band-Aids open all across the room. Because here's what I want you to do this morning. I want you to take that Band-Aid, and I want you to put it around one of your fingers. And my challenge to you is this, this week. Okay, I have my, you can't see it, my band-aid's right here on my pinky. So pick a finger that you want, okay? So some of you are like, but I painted my nails this morning. It's fine. God loves your neighbor more than your fingernails, okay? Here's the deal. I want you to put it on your finger. Almost, you know how we string a, tie a string around our finger to remember something? Here's why I want you to, all week, I'd love for you, I'd love for you to come in next week and everybody show me your band-aid, okay? I would prefer you pick one of the four fingers. That's what I prefer, okay? I want you to show me your band-aid. Okay, why do I want you to wear the Band-Aid? Because I simply want every time you look at that Band-Aid for it to be a reminder, do I see my neighbors? Or am I so focused on me? I want every time you look at that Band-Aid to, to think to yourself, what is my reaction when I see them? Is it sarcasm, cynicism? Am I judging? Is there prejudice? Is there, or do I feel a splachna? I want every time that you Look at that Band-Aid for you to think, particularly if it's a neighbor you've not met, is this the always moment for me to go and walk through that awkward gate and say, hey, I'm Dan, I live next door to you, even if we've lived next door to each other for 40 years. I want every time you see that Band-Aid for you to ask yourself the question, what does that person need from me? Like, what do they need? Maybe they just need some conversation. Maybe they need something physical, like maybe they need you to help them. What do they need from me? Every time you look at that mandate, I want you to, to look and say, I wonder what the cost might be and will I be willing to count the cost and keep showing up in their life? I know it's dorky and geeky and whatever. I get it. But it is a great way for me to remember, do I see my neighbor? Do I feel for my neighbor? Am I willing to go to my neighbor actually practically help my neighbor and keep showing up even if it costs me. On my Band-Aid, on my Band-Aid, I wrote the initials of my neighbors. So that when I look at that Band-Aid, I begin to think, oh yeah. Why? Because there's nothing more important you'll ever ask yourself than what kind of neighbor am I? And there's nothing more impacting we will ever do. And so God, as we walk out, with these funny little band-aids on our fingers. I pray that you would help us to come back in here next week, band-aids on our fingers, with a week of deliberate reminder that you placed us in our neighborhood, in our apartment, at our workstation, in our school, in that trailer park, wherever it is we're at, on purpose. So God, help us to see the people around us, God, I pray that you'd help us to get into their story enough that we might have splachna. God, I pray that you'd help us to, to walk through the awkward, to walk through the awkward moment. And then God, help us to see what they need so that we can just literally help them the way they need. And God, I pray that somehow we would just keep showing up because... Mercy in us is an overflowing attitude of kindness, not just a random act of kindness.
And God, for some of us, that's going to be easier than others. Because for some of us, there's a cost that's, that's hard for us to think about. But God, I am grateful that this, this story does stretch us. It stretches us and it challenges us. And so I'm so grateful that you love us enough to do that and not leave us where we're at. I love you, Lord, and I thank you so much that you love me. I pray this in Jesus' name.